Welcome back to Mike and Maurice's Mind Escape. Let us help you escape your mind. Welcome back to Mike and Maurice's Mind Escape. We have episode number 272 tonight. We are doing Mysteries and Metaphysics 7.1. We did 7.0 last time. Leah and I and Shane, you can check that episode out. The link is down below. Um, 7.0 of Mysteries and and Metaphysics was... um, we talked about the the history of psychedelics from prehistory all the way to, I don't know, roughly, you know, I think we ended with the Romans or possibly the Greeks somewhere around there. But, um, so tonight, we definitely even didn't get to the middle ages. Yeah. So tonight we're going to be talking about the middle ages all the way to modernity or modern times. So, um, yeah, this should be fun. Uh, I'm pumped for it. Uh, I know Shane wanted to jump on tonight, but he had something come up at the last minute. So shout out to Shane. Love you, bro. Um, and shout out to Toby. Um, and yeah, so it also, oh, tonight, uh, Leah on her channel, The Invisible Night School, they had Mick West on. So if you're into the UFO UAP topic, go check out that episode. Um, if you don't like skeptics, though, it might aggravate you. So, um, but as you know, you've seen Mick West on our show, and uh, it is what it is. You know, you're talking with the skeptic. So, but I definitely recommend Invisible Night School as a channel. Um, they take a very non BS approach to it. Um, so yeah, go check that out. And I have Leah's Substack link down below. Uh, you can follow oh, her on there. And any other links, Leah? No, I mean, you can find me uh, on Twitter as well, at Leah Prime. All right. That's pretty much it. Yeah, yeah. Substack and Twitter, man. The two. All right. Sounds good to me. Um, and, yeah, you can follow Shane, too, at, uh, at Old Vet Symposium. Um, let's see here. If you want to support Mind Escape, all you have to do is click the Linktree link down below. We've got a Patreon with exclusive content. I restructured it, so we have a $2, a $5, and a $10 tier. Um, When our documentary comes out in March, um, As Within, So Without, from UFOs to DMT, we're probably going to release a director's cut on our Patreon for like $5, which might be like four hours long. So um, look for that. I will make an announcement when that happens. As far as the main documentary, it's premiering at the Roswell UFO Expo from March 10th through 12th. Uh, I will be speaking there with Shane and Toby. Um, I know Maurice is trying to get down there as well. And, um, yeah, so after it premieres, we don't know what we're doing yet, if we can get it on a streaming platform or figure out a way to do it on YouTube. I don't know. We still have to figure that out. But the, the, the whole goal is to just get it done. And right now we're at like three and a half hours working time. So, um, yeah. So yeah, click the link tree link. We've got Patreon. We've got a merch store. Uh, our last episode's one of my more favorite episodes I've done with Maurice. It's hash. It was hashtag let Maurice speak. 
episode where we just talked about jam bands and music and music theory and uh, all that amazing stuff. So go check that episode out. Um, yeah, we have some amazing stuff coming up later this week, too, on... Let's see here. Friday at 7 p.m. Eastern time on my other podcast, Roswell UFO Symposium, that I do with Shane and Toby, we will have James Fox, the director of uh, The Phenomenon and Moment of Contact. Uh, and then on Saturday night on Mind Escape, I have special guests coming back on, P.D. Newman. If you follow Mind Escape, we've had P.D. on a couple times before. Uh, his book, Alchemically Stoned, is awesome. And his more recent books, Angels in Vermilion, where he talks about um, John D, you know, the Philosopher's Stone, all that kind of stuff. So um, definitely check. If you are into like ancient psychedelics, psychoactive compounds, um, you know, Freemasonry, all that kind of stuff. PD is a Freemason and he's just super, super knowledgeable about all the esoteric and mystery traditions. So uh, check that out. And then finally on Sunday, uh, we're going to do a, our weekly Roswell UFO Symposium episode uh, where Shane is going to walk us through the Space Pancakes UFO UAP case, which I'm looking forward to. So big week coming ahead. Um, the easiest way to support Mind Escape is just to either subscribe to our YouTube channel and give us a like, or the other thing that I really appreciate is just leaving, a, leaving us a nice review on Spotify or Apple Podcast. If you watch us live, which we do our episodes live on YouTube, please check out our audio platforms. And uh, if you are watching, you know, we actually, I want to mention this, we do have video episodes on Spotify as well, which most podcasts don't. So uh, without further ado, let's let's get to it here. Um, so Leah, um, let's talk a little bit about the Middle Ages. Um, I have a bunch of timeline stuff ready to go, but let's see, what do you want to start with? Right. So the big reason I pushed you for this second episode was because I felt like we were leaving out some of the best parts of the story with metaphysics and psychedelics, especially this approach from the medieval period through modernity, through kind of postmodernism where we sit right now. Um, the first thing that I have on my I don't know, psychedelic timeline is um, ergotism and the introduction or first kind of reports of people experiencing intoxication due to exposure to these mycotoxins. And that places us in 857. That's the first documented case of ergotism. Um, and ergot is basically like a fungus that infects different grains and when consumed leads to all kinds of unpleasant effects. Yeah. It's uh claviceps prepea. Yeah. Yes. You, you know, the, you know, the bigger words here than I do. Um, and, and this, in the original 857 outbreak, this was reported from Germany. Um, and then subsequently about a century later, you start seeing reports of it, in France and in Scandinavia. And I think this, the, uh, the French outbreak that we see in 944 led to estimates of up to 40,000 deaths. So this was not a trivial thing. This was regularly killing and incapacitating huge numbers of people. Yeah. I, um, I want to mention when people hear like ergot, um, in association with like the Eleusinian mysteries or ancient psychedelic use, 
Um, ergot's a precursor to LSD. It's not, I mean, it's got effects, but you know, one of the main things you can get convulsions. It's really bad for your digestive system. Um, it's very, very neurotoxic. So, um, again, it's the precursor. You can't just take that and, and have a, you know, this amazing psychedelic experience. Um, as to what you were saying, um, that's interesting. I mean, I know um, there's been some correlation with like the Salem witch trials and all that, um, and like people acting erratically and possibly due to what you're talking about. My whole thing is, um, I don't, I don't, I don't know if that fully explain. Like, do you think these people, um, when they when they take the ergot, they're having this like full blown Let's say they don't have tons of physical like um, uh, symptoms, like negative experience or negative symptoms. Do you think that they're having a real mystical experience or like what do you think is happening there? You know, um, well, Mike, that's a great question and a great opportunity for me to talk about my views on psychedelics and altered consciousness, which is that, um, you know, when people are having especially these psychological um, or kind of metaphysical experiences associated with ingesting these substances, like you said. Um, I think that what these, what, what psychedelics and ergot I would expect to provide is basically a side entryway into what's conventionally considered a mystical or transcendent experience. It's basically like a, uh, a jumpstart into those states. So um, I say that to, to say that there is obviously um, materialist um, understanding of what's going on in terms of how brain chemicals are affected um, after ingesting these chemicals. But I also think that the kind of experience from an internal perspective is also a gateway or a bridge into broader more numinous spiritual experiences it's basically a way to jump start that kind of experience um and, and i mean not to fast forward too hard but like i always think of ramdas talking about how psychedelics are a window but not a door right where they give people this sort of shortcut or jump start on experiencing these states that have otherwise historically been accessible through sustained and dedicated practice through any one of the number of mystical lineages uh, found throughout the world also i see chase howard saying i'm a witch possibly i agree he thinks that about so, everyone. Shout out to all our witches. Shout out to Nora. Um, Hi, Nora. <laughs> uh, so I want to set this up just a little bit because people are probably listening to this. So in the first part, 7.0, we talked, we started with the Stone Day hypothesis, talked about Terrence McKenna, um, talked about, um, you know, the Algerian cave uh, paintings, um, Tassili, uh, Ajir, um in Algeria, the bee mushroom shaman. Uh, then we moved on to Salva Pasquala, which is, you know, 7,000 years old, which it depicts Salosa B. Hispanica next to a bowl. Um, again, you can go back and watch 7.0, and I actually have slides uh, for that episode. We're not going to do slides tonight because I don't think we need it, but um, some of these, you know, it's good to have a little bit of a reference. Um, and then we worked our way. You know, we talked about Soma and the Indo-Iranian break-off, 
uh, going into, you know, the Vedic culture in Northwest India, and then the other break off going down into Iran and them creating, you know, the Avesta and the people that went into Northwest India uh, created the Rig Veda. Um, we talked about the Eleusinian Mysteries, which ran from about 1450 BC to about 392 um, AD and uh, Marcus Aurelius re um, instating them after they had been destroyed, I, I believe by Alaric, the Visigoth. Um, we went through a table where I went through all of the archaeological discoveries and the years that they were found. Um, so yeah, um, now we get to where we're, what we're talking about now, like Urgot. Um, uh, they have found ergot in like ancient people's teeth too. So it's not, I mean, even though you're saying Germany, I think that that's probably the first recorded version, right? Or yeah, that's, that, that's exactly right. And there's even this idea that, um, and I'm going to butcher this, but this idea that Kaikion, the beverage that's consumed by participants in the, um, Eleusinian mysteries, um, that there may be ergot even in that. Yeah, Let so talk in, about this. Oh, I'm yeah, sorry. Go ahead. No, I was going to say um, the road to Eleusis um, talk, discusses that. And then uh, Brian Marescu wrote a follow-up book recently. Uh, which, the first one's not his. The first one, um, the road to Eleusis, um, uh, you know, it's like Wasson and um, I'm, I'm drawing a blank on the guy's name right now. Uh, but anyways, um you know, it, it just talks about what, you know, the initial theory of what we're discussing, because we know the Eleusinian Mysteries surra or surrounded a, an agrarian cult uh, that had to do with Persephone and Demeter uh, being taken to the underworld. It all mimics the cycles of nature and um, uh, agriculture. And, you know, it would make sense that ergot, which is a, you mentioned a grain fungus, uh, Claviceps purpea, um, grows on this grain and then towards the fall you would have this and then you would create you know have this festival the greater mysteries um, so here, here's the thing um, Brian Moreski wrote this book called the immortality key uh, I recommend it if you're into this topic um, there's things I definitely disagree with in the book but there's also some really interesting science and archaeology done um, and he actually mm -hmm. found physical evidence of ergot in a lot of these chalices one in Spain um, and a couple other ones that, um, uh, yeah. So you were going to say something, sorry, Leah. Oh, I don't even remember what I was <laughs> going to say. So you can keep talking about, um, Murawski's book. Yeah. So, I mean, it, yeah. So it, it goes into the whole thing of, um, what we're talking about right now, um, in depth and, um, yeah, Gordon Wasson, Albert Hoffman and, uh, uh, Ruck, Carl Ruck. And I believe he actually consulted with Carl Ruck. Um, and Carl Ruck, who started uh, down this path a while ago, actually was very excited by a lot of these discoveries that they found. Um, so, yeah, it's an interesting book. Um, I don't agree with some of the conclusions because it gets kind of religious-y, and I think he's either Catholic or Jesuit or something. But, um, you know, other than that, you know, there's a lot of interesting archaeological uh, evidence and, um, you know, classical philosophy style uh, stuff in there. Um, and you can watch many, one of our many episodes uh, that we've done on ancient psychedelics where I talk about the Eleusinian Mysteries. And we'll probably do one in the future. We'll have our friend Sandy on who just came back from Eleusis and has oh, cool. a bunch of uh, pictures and everything. Shout out to Sandy. Um, 
but yeah, so so the ergot thing's interesting. But what they say though, and I think Terrence McKenna talks about this a little bit, like you could. So what they would do is the 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 uh, Kikion, which you mentioned, uh, the so-called psychedelic brew. I've heard um, different variations of things that could be in there, but there was that supposedly a list of ingredients found was like water. Um, I forget. I'd have to look at a barley mint and then something else. Um, and like Terrence McKenna makes the point that you would never put water on uh, a recipe or an ingredients list. It's actually like an augum. And if you don't know what an augum is, it's something where you would replace whatever that is with something else. So that's his argument for it. But you you could boil this drink supposedly and like scrape off the top of like the the neurotoxic uh, neurotoxic stuff associated with the ergot and get that effect um mm-hmm. i mean who knows the claviceps makes sense because the agrarian cult however mushrooms grow everywhere <laughs> i mean all you have to do is make mushroom tea and, and that wouldn't be too hard to get everybody completely um you know kicked up a notch so i don't know what are your thoughts on that um Yes. I mean, my, you know, my, my general thoughts on ergotism is that I, I think that the way it could or would be experienced um, lends itself well to deliberate and intentional ingestion to experience these states. Um, what, what I don't understand or don't know very much about is how much of these negative effects, whether it's gangrene or convulsions, if that is the result of sustained dosing or ingestion versus like a one-time acute dose, which can, leads can, to like a psychedelic experience. It but can be a one-time. It can be a one-time acute dose. I heard a story. I don't know if it was Hamilton Morris, but he was talking about um, there was this guy they sent to pick up this ergot to bring to this other clandestine chemist because you need obviously that to um, synthesize Mm -hmm. LSD. And this guy thought it was LSD and he snorted a huge honk in line of it. And supposedly he started convulsing instantly. So, um, you know, I, I, I guess it's, you know, like the old, um, uh, Paracelsus adage, it's all about dosing, you know, or dosage, Mm -hmm. um, you know, dose makes the poison or whatever. So, um, yeah, I think I think you can I think it can have a serious effect the first time though. That's what I'm saying. It's like does it ma- like if they're making bread, does the bread alter the chemical makeup of it so it makes it more or less toxic? I don't know. Like there's so many variables. Like how do you even mm-hmm. begin with that? Not not only variables, but like no kind of standardization at all, right? Like we're talking about thousands of years ago or hundreds of years ago, and it's not like we're talking about a um, standardized compound that has been reduced and measured appropriately in a lab, right? Like, um, I know in low doses, it's supposed to be I, helpful uh, for uh, migraine headaches and um, some part of the pain. birthing process or something. I don't know. Really fascinating. That I, that I don't know. That's really interesting, though, if it has that application to women's health. Yeah, you'd have to look it up, but there is some weird thing in there about it. Fascinating. Yeah, so, um, I mean, ergotism, it has, you know, this is sort of sustained exposure or, like, substantial acute singular dose. Um, it's also called ergotoxicosis, 
I just I assume that just means like ergot toxicity. But it's also known as something called St. Anthony's fire. And the experience of ergotism basically manifests in one of two ways. It either shows up as convulsions, so like basically seizures or uncontrollable muscle spasms and contractions, which is super painful. Anyone who's ever had a Charlie horse can attest to that. Um, and then it also shows up with uh, basically like gangrene, which is the result of um, pretty substantial vasoconstriction that occurs upon ingestion. Uh, basically makes your... Um, blood vessels like shrink down and tighten up so you can't get appropriate and necessary blood flow to extremities and over time this can lead to gangrene right like this sort of systemic death of of tissue particularly in the outer limbs that are relying on regular blood flow to keep them healthy yeah i mean doesn't sound fun right so i mean but like the idea is these people other than the hallucinating mysteries um, you're, the people we're talking about most likely ingested this without knowing. Um, so it's a little bit different, right? And I think that that's what was the initial idea. The Salem witch trial stuff, I don't want to jump too far ahead, and then we will get back to like a timeline here in a second. But the Salem witch trial stuff, I've heard both. I, I've he heard people debunk it with like a lot of um, a lot of evidence to debunk it. And I've also heard people um, for it saying, you know, it would make sense that these women were convulsing and speaking in tongues and things like that and whatever. But, um, yeah, I mean, I just, uh, like I said, I, I've heard it pretty easily debunked. I don't know if you've read anything into that. Yeah. I mean, so my understanding is that this idea of erotism showing up is like kind of a, it, like in terms of interpreting like the witch trials, for instance, that this is, kind of a modern artifact or interpretation it's a when i was looking on wikipedia earlier i think it said it was like in the 1970s or 80s that this was first a seriously proposed theory in terms of um actual fit it intuitively feels like yes it does fit or match a lot of the reported symptoms but um i i also particularly around events like the witch trials, which to me feel like an equal part myth and folklore and then equal part genuine, accurate historical reporting. Um, I, I feel like there's also this inclination to take something from history and kind of push it into the frameworks of modernity, which for us mean looking at this and thinking, hey, this is a drug or this is a psychedelic, not deliberately ingested, but still ingested, rather than thinking about, um, you know, I would say maybe some of the more psychosocial events um, that may be going on. Um, and also like folio de, right? Like this idea that um, the madness of two or the madness of a group where you have one person uh, who may be experiencing psychosis or a manic episode or something. And then you have other people that may be extremely impressionable, in this case, young women, for instance, um, who are exposed to this intensity of emotion and then kind of subsume that behavior into their own behaviors. And I think that this is pretty well documented, right? Like we see even in social groups, like how people will take on the traits and behaviors of other people that they spend lots of time around. So to me, it doesn't feel like a long bow to draw to think that, well, maybe not in totality, there's probably some element of psychosocial kind of transference going on here. 
Yeah, good points. Good points. Um, Chase was asking about, he's like, what about the fungus that takes over the brains of crickets and, and, and ants? And uh, I think he's talking about cordyceps. Shout out to Chase. Um, cordyceps mushrooms are actually, dude, there's a new show called, I think, The Last of Us. Yeah, I believe it's called The Last of Us. It's a zombie show. And the premise is cordyceps mushrooms infect humans and take over their minds and they become zombies it's pretty wild and i really enjoyed it that's, that's a video game yeah, yeah yeah they turned it into a show it's with a video game. The, you know yeah, yeah. you know they i didn't realize there was a show yeah they turned into a show the main guy is the dude that gets his eyes gouged out um in game of thrones by the mountain and he his little sidekick is this the little I haven't, chick i haven't seen game of thrones, you've never seen game of thrones but... oh my god Dude, I we could do a whole show on what Leah doesn't know. I don't watch. I've seen like fifty movies and like three TV shows in my whole life. I, I don't watch anything. I don't. Oh my yeah, god, for Leah, me, man. dude! I know, I know. Well, we got to get you to watch Game of Thrones. This is how I know so much about everything else. No, I I, I I know, I know, but it's possible to know both. So, um, but yeah, we'll get you Let's on Game of Thrones. We'll, we'll get you on game let's of- get back to ergotism. <laughs> um so yeah so you mentioned the first reported like known case of it was in the 1800s now who do you know what was the no, was it by like the a, 1800 or, or i mean 800 Eight, oh, sorry 857 yeah, yeah. yeah like the ninth, ninth century was it a physician or like who or uh like who was the one that was recording this you know that's a good question. Um, I just know that this is the f- the eight fifty seven is cited as the first time that gangrenous ergotism is kind of recorded. If I had to guess, it was probably in some kind of like um, like like regional history or like documentation that may have been recorded. Um, I don't I don't in sort of going through my brain about some of the medieval texts I've worked with, like for Sartre's Chronicles and the Nuremberg Chronicle and stuff. I don't think either of them mention um saint anthony's fire but what we like i said we do see in the mid 9th or the mid 10th century in 944 um we uh see that uh 40,000 deaths are attributed to this um in france and then uh fast fast forwarding a, a few hundred years ergot starts showing up in a lot of like poultices like medical applications where people are mixing it um, with like fat or oil or butter and applying it um, to basic like basically abdomens and other areas that may be experiencing pain or discomfort. So it's providing some of this kind of like localized pain relief and also entering like basically like the folk medicine tradition at this time in Europe, which is pretty interesting, I think. Yeah, I mean, uh, people, I think the intuition about fungi and um you know molds and stuff like that's been around for a while the egyptians knew that if they grew mold that they would be able to use that uh, on their injuries because for penicillin um so it's like mm-hmm. that's been around for a while like we think of like medicine oh it's so new and great and what did these ancient people do before they were just using the precursors for the stuff that we already know and use now for the most part i mean we use plants and fungi for things now we just synthesize it or we'll add things to it or, you know, things like that. But these ideas 
on how to deal with these things have been around for a while. And it's amazing that some of these ancient cultures like the Egyptians mm-hmm. knew that if they put, uh, you know, mold or, you know, that has penicillin in it into a wound that they would prevent it from, you know, becoming gangrenous, gangrenous mm-hmm. or whatever. So, um, let's see here. All right. So we were talking about, yeah, er- yeah go ahead. Yeah, we were talking about Urgot, and I was going to say that the other place that Urgot shows up as a possible theory are in the dancing plagues of the 16th century. Um, the laughing, there's familiar, laughing ones and dancing ones, I think. Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> Best of both worlds. But like, yeah, the, the dancing plague, it's also called the dance epidemic of 1518. It's in Alsace-Lorraine, so right now... Uh, what we'd call France. And it basically is this report from the middle of the year, 1518, reporting that hundreds of people basically took to the streets and danced. Danced and convulsed basically until they died, like until injury overtook them and they they died (laughs) as a result. And there's always, of course... You know, there's there's always kind of this necessary conversation to be had when we're talking about these medieval, particularly like early and and mid-ish medieval period reportage or histories, where the the concept of historiography isn't actually well developed at this point. So the way um, accounts and um, reporting uh, is done on these events is fairly different than what we would expect a modern report to look like in terms of factual accuracy um, and documentation. But there, there is some sort of his- historic controversy over even whether this happened, and if it did happen, the extent or actual deaths that were exhibited as a result. Yeah, I mean, this idea that... <laughs> we've got all the facts or science is finished now. We know 98% of the, like, that's all horseshit. We don't know shit. It's going to keep evolving. Um, It's philosophy of science. And I, I, you know, I preach the philosophy of science because I think it's so important. And I've talked to some scientists online where it's like, they don't even think twice about philosophy. And I think that that's a massive, massive red flag to where, um, a lot of these people are maybe just specialized, um, you know, AIs in a way. They're just recording data and, you know, running experiments and doing all these things, but they're not really introspectively thinking about what they're doing. A good thing or a bad thing, I don't know. I don't. Do you have an opinion on that, Leah? Because I, I, do, I don't think if you don't have a basis um, of philosophy and an understanding of, like, cognitive bias and things like that, you're still a human being that's interpreting data. So in a way, even if you're a scientist and you're using the scientific method, you're still subject to the same cognitive biases that anybody else would be. Yeah, I mean, I mean, we could do a whole show on Leo's opinions on the state of pedagogy and critical thought in the modern West and the predilection of people to adhere to extremely reductionist and frankly lazy models of reality and service to preconceived biases about their environment and about human experience. Um, and frankly, I think we also live, and I say this as someone who works in tech at very high levels, 
We also live in a culture that is overwhelmingly technology driven. Our entire economy is underpinned by technology. And we have um, a kind of anti-credentialist mindset among the tech sector that quite candidly, I think is prone to denigrate um, not only formal education, but particularly non-technical education. So they are dismissive or do not see the value in say a philosophical or classic humanities or liberal arts background. Now, I will also say with pride that I'm currently in the process of a four-year great books curriculum with one of the more well-known institutions in the United States. Um, and I bring this up because I am I do think that having this well-rounded interdisciplinary and philosophical background um, creates basically more robust and resilient brains that can in turn solve much more complex and sophisticated problems. And we certainly have no shortage of those. And that's how you do it, folks. Um, I will say, (laughs) I will say that, um, you know, I love both. I love academic stuff and I love fringe stuff. I get frustrated when I see, you know, dogmatic thinking on either side that's just what really frustrates me mm-hmm. it's just like we've we don't have this figured out we have ideas we have models we have theories we you know but at the end of the day um this idea and and you you mentioned technology technology's made this worse um now we're at a point where you're getting tons of heuristic um rhetoric where people are just arguing to argue without any sort of um you know, thirst for the truth. It's just like, how can I beat this person or how can I obtain what I need to obtain to win this argument kind of a thing? Yeah. And I, I, I'm with you. I think there is this huge ego tie up in, um, discussion. And I also think that the internet and technology has done, um, an extraordinary job of basically poisoning people's brains to make them as ironic and cynical as possible. Like this is something I harp on constantly on my show and even in my personal conduct I'm always I want to be having good faith conversations there's no gotcha there's no dunks like there's a genuine desire to collaboratively explore and discuss things because I think that I can learn something from everyone who I meet and engage with um even if maybe I just learn that they're kind of assholes and I don't want anything to do with them um or whatever but the point is like I I, I do think that people have so many different kinds of intelligence um, that they can uh, pass along and share. But I also think, you know, this is going totally off the ranch, but I also think we have a a culture that hinges on um, or that celebrates like these declarative statements rather than the kind of dialectical process or this ongoing either monologue or conversation that you really should be having in talking about subjects of sophistication or nuance. Um, We tend to reward people that provide highly reductionist, um, uninspired thinking with, you know, that they make declarations because that gives us a neat little scaffold onto which we can interpret reality. But I think the really interesting stuff happens is when we back away from these declarations and instead um, independently and collaboratively engage with like sense making as an iterative and ongoing process that's never really done in any meaningful sense because there's never ever going to be a shortage of things to explore, whether on your own or with other people. 
Yeah, and I don't want to go too much longer on this. I want to get back to the timeline, but I will say this. Nothing cool <laughs> was ever um, discovered or invented or whatever by some slow crawl scientist. <laughs> you know, like it's it's never the guy that's doing the day in and day out monotonous stuff. It's always the outside the box thinker or the person that's, you know, the psychonaut or they have some weird quirky aspect to their personality or they have you know have a weird sleep schedule or they're up for three hours and sleep for two hours up for you know they like you look at all the most intelligent mm -hmm. people and there's always some weird quirky thing or belief or like tesla believed he was in contact with some sort of um otherworldly entities that were giving him the, you know so it's like stuff like that the dude uh, oh, yeah. Fra francis it's crick had taken lsd like all all these things um you know, they don't happen to the people that, and, and I, I don't want to sound like I, I'm hating on science because I love science. I just feel like, to your point, you hit the nail on the head, which is that um, I think that, like, we just, like, to be this, like, paradigm-shifting um, discoverer of something, you have to take chances. And I feel like, as a society... Mm -hmm. We're like you said, we're playing it safe. How can we play it the safest and we'll keep rewarding the safe bet as opposed to going out on a limb? And let's let's reward um, taking a chance, taking a risk, you know, like that's I think the problem. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, so much of uh, human experience in some and so much of our education system and our research system is only existing in service to capitalism. And I know that's probably a very political thing to say, but these are these are mechanisms and institutions that have been reduced only to the um, importance of generating revenue. And as a result, I think it also incentivizes having thinking and approaches and individuals that are extremely conventional and kind of cookie cutter, rather than um, providing the mechanisms by which paradigm shifting like rogue scientists quote unquote are actually able to full because you're breaking up there. you're breaking up for a second leah um so i will jump in here for one second until leah's audio catches up um, wealth Leah, are you there? Leah's going to jump back in here in a second. Um, let's see here. Um, so the last one, the last episode we did, um, let's see here. Let's get Leah back in here. The last episode we did, 7.0, we left off uh, with Black Drink. Uh, 1050 AD, which was a Native American, um, some sort of psychoactive uh, drink. I don't know what black drink is. I have a feeling P.D. Newman knows what it is, though. Um, so we'll ask him on Saturday. But uh, the Native American culture is roughly 1000 B.C. to 1600 A.D., very rich with different tobaccos and psychoactive compounds, snuffs. Um, the Incan civilization, obviously, from 300 A.D. to... Um, 1500 AD, um, you get San Pedro and all that kind of stuff. Um, and we'll get into a little bit more into this. And we did discuss a little bit this last time. The Aztec civilization, 1200, 1250 AD to 1521 AD. 
Um, if you're interested in like Mesoamerican uh, psychedelics and metaphysics, you can check out our episodes with Tom Lane, who wrote this book. Um, he wrote this book, Sacred Mushroom Rituals, The Search for, for the Blood of Quetzalcoatl. Um, he actually sat uh, with, you know, in on some sacred mushroom rituals with Maria Sabina uh, in the 1970s and then wrote a book about his experiences. Um, very knowledgeable about Mesoamerican metaphysics and stuff like that. So go check out those episodes. Uh, I think we might have a playlist, uh, but I can add a link down below after we're done. But yeah, they're just called S Sacred Mushroom Rituals uh, with Tom Lane. So ch check out those episodes if you're interested. I really... Uh, enjoyed that series um but yeah so and then 1000 or you know one recently i should say uh there was a study published where they found a shaman's fox snout pouch from 1000 a.d in bolivia uh that contained bufatine uh dmt uh harmaline uh i think coca leaves uh snuffing tube it's all, the, it's all the good stuff. Yeah, right? plus an MAOI inhibitor. So. Yeah, it was basically what it was was Hunter S. Thompson's pouch that he uh, somehow aged. Um, no, I'm joking, but uh, yeah, no, it's totally it's like age. the Long Island iced tea of drugs. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, so that was very interesting. I think um, so that I, um, that whole thing, what, what I was just talking about. Dennis McKenna, who's a famous, you know, psychedelic researcher, he's the mm -hmm. brother of Terrence McKenna, uh, Terrence made a brother. Yeah. Yep, made a point that um, that that makes ayahuasca at least a possible concoction a thousand years ago, at least. Uh, which I mean, definitely, if you can find all those compounds in one pouch, I don't see why ayahuasca wouldn't be um, a possibility at that point. So. Um, I love all the Mesoamerican stuff. If you're interested in the actual codices, I think it's the Vienna Codex that has the sacred mushroom rituals in them where you can actually see, um, I think it's like 10 lizard or 11 lizard, and you can find all these little uh, the iconography with the little mushrooms on them. You can clearly see that they're clusters of mushrooms, um, and it's very interesting. So go check those. And we talk about all that on the Tom, the Tom Lane uh, episodes as well. Uh, but yeah, I love the Mesoamerican stuff. They have the mushroom stones. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen uh, Paul Stamets's collection, but Paul Stamets has a large collection of these mushroom stones. Um, also, my girl Laura, who's AKA the Megalith Hunter, she did a fantastic little video um, on the Olmecs and possible connection to 5-MeO-DMT because it was only theorized recently that 5-MeO has only been known for the last probably since the 80s I think this guy named Nelson uh, who uh, Hamilton Morris uh, found the guy that synthesized it initially or found out that the toad um, produces this thing and then he became a huge proponent of trying to get people like like to synthesize it as opposed to messing with the Bufo or Sonoran Desert toad if you will um colorado river toad it's got a bunch of names apparently so um but yeah so that's where we're at with that so i love all the mesoamerican stuff um go check out those episodes and yeah let's see here i want to get back to where we were talking about like the middle ages stuff though so supposedly and i don't know if you're aware of this but in 1496 
one of um, Christopher Columbus's um, men, I believe uh, Ramon, some guy named Ramon, um, wrote down how the Taino people who are from Haiti and mm. the Dominican Republic use the psych- psychoactive snuff called uh, cahoba or yapo, yopo, yapo. Um, and this, stu- this snuff is basically uh, contains DMT and 5-MeO-DMT, um, which comes from the Andanathera, um, which is a bush. Um, but yeah, that's kind of interesting. Have you ever heard of that? Um, not that specific snuff, but I'm, I would say f- relatively familiar with shamanistic use of snuff. So I'm, I'm curious when you were reading off, um, the contents here, I'm super curious about how psychoactive this could be. Do you have any idea? I wonder if you can buy it. You probably can. There was an episode, um, of Hamilton's Pharmacopoeia where he went down to Argentina, um, I forget the name of it, but I think it's a part, it's a, and in a thera, but it's mixed with something else. And he, he doesn't have the kind of experience, but supposedly, um, oh, what's that dude's name? I'm drawing a blank on his name. Um, he's kind of like a recluse psychedelic researcher. He's written books. I'm, I'm drawing a blank on his name. Anyways, this dude wrote a whole book where he, he does say that you can, get to that place with the snuff um so yeah i mean i think it's possible i I mean i've never done it so i can't obviously speak to it but if these native americans were doing it and they did it for hundreds of years i I, you know yeah i'm I'm curious i i totally had a a snuff phase when i was in graduate school like nasal snuff and i'm not being euphemistic i mean like actual tobacco nasal snuff um and it gives you this great little buzz. Um, and of course, all the other snuff nerds on the internet will tell you it's totally safe compared to smoking or whatever. Um, but it's only recently that I've become aware of the kind of inclusion of snuff into uh, like basically indigenous rituals and integrated uh, like community healing sessions and stuff. Um, so I'm, I'm very curious about it. I'd love to learn more just in general. I'm always open to new experiences. So, uh, I may have to search the internet for this. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think, um, I, I mean, I, I can only imagine, um, oh yeah, he was, so this was some sort of concoction of, uh, bufotidine. I think that's how you pronounce it. Bufotidine. Um, uh, it's called Hataj. Um, what's that dude's name, though? Uh, I'm trying, that's going to really, really bug me. R.P. Shamakura wrote a book or a paper called Bufotinine, a Hallucinogen in Ancient Snuff Powders. Mm. Sounds cool. Yeah. Um, but anyways, I don't, I don't want to get stuck on that because this will drive me crazy for a while uh, until I... <laughs> Uh, figure it out but anyways back to where we were so yeah um that piece of shit christopher columbus one of his guys apparently was snuffing it up whoa let's not get too woke here mike no but and he, <laughs> he he should have known better he's yeah anyways let's see here 1560 um, and by the way, there's this dude that wrote this book. It's like the encyclopedia 
of psychedelics and he passed away but he that that book is like if you're looking for like just the history of psychedelics with all sorts of information not shogun no Alex not shogun? not shogun it's not like t call or p call this is actually like yeah um, that's what i was like like an actual encyclopedia? Yeah, this is like an actual encyclopedia. Um, I'm sure you can look it up and find it. Uh, like yeah, the... it's called Arrowwood? <laughs> yeah, that's actually a good one too. Um, uh, but in terms of like... Um, in terms of like... Uh, all these things, like there's... It's interesting to me that when we talk about psychedelics, that there's all these... It goes up and down and up and down... Um, you know, people get mad at Graham Hancock, but I believe that what he says is true sometimes in the sense that we are a species with amnesia. We keep forgetting our past, reliving it, rediscovering it, realizing it, and then something happens and we're forced to restart over again, if that makes sense. Um, so, and it I makes know, total sense. yeah. Um, and I know people get mad at that and they get mad at him, but I think that there is a certain element of truth to that saying. Um, it can't apply to everything, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, think about what we were talking about with how ancient civilizations leveraged and used the same medical tools and quote unquote medicines that we do now. Or I mean, even like we were talking about this idea of kind of prehistoric antibiotics, but even just something like willow um which can function as aspirin right like we, we see this sort of standardization and refinement of industrial processes and and um extraction techniques but i mean a whole lot of i think what still exists in our pharmacological kind of cornucopia is based on traditional stuff oh absolutely um, like I mentioned, you know, it can, can even go to like medicine, like the Egyptians using, you know, mold for the penicillin and stuff. Like there's all these things are just the derivative of something else. You know, everything is influenced by other things. Even we're heavily influenced by nature even today in this modern oh, yeah. technology age, you know, so. All right. So what's next in the timeline, man? All right. Let's get to this. Um, I think so. Yeah. That, the next one was um, uh, some Spanish priest in 1560 uh, wrote the Florentine Codex, um, basically describing the call of its time. Yeah, the Aztecs were using peyote and uh, psychedelic mushrooms or psilocybe mexicana. Cool. Um, let's see here. So yeah, you have lots of Spanish. Um, friars and conquistadors and stuff coming over um observing the mesoamericans using these um you know psychoactive compounds within their traditions um and a lot of them were bringing the idea of christ and being a christian and it kind of that's where we run into trouble right um, you have the mexican inquisition starting at around 1571 which runs all the way to 1820 um i think the the Colombians outlawed uh, entheogens in 1620 um, because of obviously everything I just mentioned. And then all the way, let's see, later on uh, in the 1950s, you have somebody named, this woman named Pike and another one named Cohen who were Christians. They tried to stop the Mazatec people from using psilocybin. Um, and that was in the 1950s. Uh, but anyways, the so... The, 
we're talking about the new world or the Mesoamerican stuff. You know, salvia comes from a, um, um, the, basically the same region of Mexico where Maria Sabina's from. I think it's Hualta, if I'm not mistaken. Mm. Um, anyways, there's like a very specific part of Mexico where salvia grows um, in the forest there in the mountains. But it's it's hard. To, like, I don't think... Uh, in the episode where Hamilton Morris goes there, he finds there's no like real tradition like there is for like ayahuasca or sacred mushroom rituals. It's more That's of because, li- dude, who likes using salvia? <laughs> it's like DMT's awful goth brother. I mean, I did it once in high school, and then I did it like 25 more times. So. <laughs> God, it's. I think of it as like classic college kid, like just want to get high. So you buy this stuff at the head shop or the gas station. You do yeah. The extract was like like, little greasy. Yeah, it was like little greasy wood chips that would come in like a little vial. It was legal in pipe shops, like you mentioned for like a long time. Yeah. And when I was in when I was in college, there was two things. There was salvia. Uh, Well, salvia came around when we were in high school, so it was like twenty five years ago. But then also. Um, you you have salvia, but then you also have this other stuff, which people called red rocks, which was some sort of incense that was also opium, where they would take two knives, heat them up, and this was like getting whoa, that's like old school dabs, right? yeah, yeah, hot yeah. knives. It was getting it was getting super sketchy. Anyways, um, uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah, salt <laughs> like late night degenerate talk. <laughs> uh, salvia, though, however. I I've had two decent experiences on it where two out it was of like, twenty five. Yeah, it was like Great. fractally and um like hyperspace. It was kinda interesting. And then a lot of them was just loss of coordination, time, you know, um dilation, um a repeat, repeat, like super repeaty. But I don't the repeat thing, I don't even heard many people talk about that, so I don't know if that was because I have O C D Maybe that's just the um, the neural processes or pattern recognition that I have, and that was what was being mm-hmm. played off of. I, you know, I've yet to to see that. But yeah, salvia is interesting. But anyways, my point was with salvia, all the smoking ones is kind of like you mentioned, it's like smoking DMT versus what you see Hamilton Morris do on the episode where he's doing it, and he chews the quids, and he said it was one of his more favorite psychedelic experiences. So I think that would be interesting to chew. Um, the leaves, because it, it's, um, you know, I guess from what I understand, and I talked to Andrew Gallimore about this when we've had him on in the past, it's not it's not more potent when you chew it. What's happening is um, it's coming, you know, it's lingual. It's coming in contact with your receptors in your mouth. So every time you chew, you're making that connection as opposed to just smoking it once and putting it down. You're in co- you're constantly reigniting the experience through chewing it. So, um, yes. I yeah. also I want to say, dude, yeah, you're totally braver than the troops. Campbell commented that continuing through that many salvia trips to get to one out of twelve good ones is one of the bravest things he's ever heard. So yes, huge props to you. Um, the the other thing I've heard about about salvia, um, and this is hearsay. Um, is that the kind of standard introduction for people is to these like super concentrated extracts, which in and of itself is um, almost to, almost going to guarantee a, a bad or super intense experience. 
and that like when you do have these indigenous uses or like less concentrated extracts you can have like pretty pleasant experiences associated with it yeah no absolutely um you know for me i've always when i was in my younger years and i had my whole life in front of me i was pretty open to trying things i mean i would actually push my limits when i was younger like as a real psychonaut before psychonaut was even like a real thing obviously people have been taking psychedelics forever you know i was very into like reading electric quid acid tests counterculture grateful mm-hmm. dead fish hippie culture all that kind of stuff so i was very well aware of all these things um but when when i was younger i really pushed i mean i remember going on a camping trip and okay i'm gonna eat 10 grams of dried mushrooms right now and i did it and it was see what happens just and it was super crazy i remember being at a fish festival um eating a bunch of mushrooms and i don't even know how many a lot and then being like yeah i'm gonna take some acid too you know um and then yeah one of my most and i'm not gonna discuss this now i actually might have discussed it past episodes so if you can find that little nugget go listen and hang on to it because i might not ever mention it again but one of my most mystical experiences was on a camping trip with psilocybin and MDMA. Um, And there was like so many more esoteric and occult aspects to this experience. I can't really get into it right now. And I don't want to waste anybody's time, even though I I know everybody wants to hear it now. Um, But yeah, I, I think that, uh, when you have your whole life in front of you, you're more willing to do things like smoke salvia a bunch of times or take, large doses of psychedelics and you know i was a weird i was always like wanting to investigate like you know these mysteries and stuff yeah, so this yeah this curiosity for breadth and depth of experience and i mean i was very much the same way my introduction wasn't really through hippie culture but at a very formative age i got really into 2600 hacker culture freaking culture um the anarchist cookbook, like all of that stuff, which kind of knit into also then getting into the yippies, like Abby Hoffman. Like I can, I can distinctly remember having a copy of Seal This Book in eighth grade and it being taken by a teacher and I'm calling my parents. This was kind of a perennial tradition in my adolescence. But like reading a bunch of Abby Hoffman didn't exactly make me think drugs were bad. Let me put it that way. <laughs> yeah, I... I... <laughs> I was very, um, very, very interested. Maurice and I were both very, very interested in like the electro- electroquid acid test, the Merry Pranksters, On the Road, you know, Ken Kesey, uh, you know, Jack Kerouac, all that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, I, you know, interesting stuff. Um, let's see here. And I mean, I always, I do always want to say too, more just a little bit more personal aside, like I've never given up that intense curiosity and appetite for novel experiences, particularly once I sort of realized just how much of daily life is psychoactive. Like when you start in meditation kind of got me into this and this idea of like presence and mindfulness, but so much of what we experience and engage with on a day-to-day basis triggers like an altered state of consciousness it's it's music it's how you feel getting in bed at the end of the day it's sex it's you know soaking in a hot bath all of these things generate and lead to uh, perceived somatic and internal um sensations 
and it, it felt like once once I kind of had that realization, it was pretty easy for me to go from that to, um, you know, I can deliberately seek out and cultivate these experiences, whether with exogenous chemicals or deliberately personally, like breath work, meditation, fasting, things like that. Yeah, that's, that's the that's the actual gateway drug, man. Meditation <laughs> is the gateway drug. <laughs> yeah, I mean, absolutely. So, so let's not kid ourselves. Coffee, psychoactive. Uh, you oh, know, yeah. if you use nicotine, Caffeine, psychoactive. Alcohol. Alcohol. Yeah, alcohol is, I think, the worst compound there is. To oh yeah, I you. I don't drink at all, and I I think I, I've yet to meet someone who I think was well served by their alcohol habits. Like I, I think I think Uh-oh. alcohol is one of those pretty very common but pretty deleterious substances it does kind of remind me of like a cigarette habit it's amazing how we've evolved for so long with it even though it's so terrible for us and our, our livers yeah. and everything. like it's like you know i don't know um anyways Plus, music yeah music music is psychoactive too yeah, probably absolutely. if you talk to like someone who's never had any kind of chemically induced expansive experience just talk to them about hearing their favorite band play live and like that's totally a consciousness altering or psychedelic experience yeah and you mentioned endogenous chemicals i mean we have dmt in our brains uh it actually might be what animates the world around us to you know in our perception and there there's so many things that we don't know about like why would we have dmt produced in our brains it makes no sense um from what we know about the material realm um so like the fact that we have the most potent psychedelic known to man being produced in our brains and in our bodies it's also produced in your lungs and your liver why why <laughs> so it's like mm-hmm. you know terence mckenna has that old adage it's like we're all holding because we are we we are a big sack of drugs is what we are yes actually and leah is in our documentary as within so without from dmt or from ufos to dmt and i think in the trailer you say um we're just like these response i forget what the thing exact thing you say we're like oh i probably say that we're probably just like stimulus response machines yeah and that's that's like a lot of human experience that's we're the biological version of what you just said Mm -hmm. so um but yeah moving back on let's see here um so yeah, you have all the conquistadors and the priests, the Spanish priests and the friars and all that stuff. And then you get to, let's see here. Um, okay, so 1851, uh, Richard Spruce, who was an ethnobotanist, um, he was exploring the Amazon and he saw the, um, the Tucano Indians who are part of the Rio U- UAPs uh, in Brazil, um, they were drinking ayahuasca. Um, so there, 1851, you have an etho- ethnobotanist observing ayahuasca use. Um, let's see here. In 1864, uh, a French physician reportedly or reported the use of iboga, um, which is found oh, in cool. Gabon uh, in, in the Congo, um, Central Africa. So, yeah, I mean, those are Iboga. If anybody doesn't know what Iboga is, it's indigenous to Africa. Um, There's actually a lot of evidence pointing to its beneficial effects for people that have addiction issues. Um, So I know one of the main things they're working on is this compound called Tabernathalog, uh, where 
they're creating um, basically it's basically one of the components of iboga without the psychedelic effects. So they're making it a possibility to maybe like they're trying to work on this thing where it's like maybe some of these people that want help from this plant or whatever don't want to go through the intense psychedelic experience or don't want to go through the purging or whatever it is. So they're trying to isolate certain compounds that they might think that are what's creating that neuroplasticity or not wanting to, you know, use whatever drug they're using, whether it be heroin, fentanyl, alcohol, whatever. So, mm-hmm. um, so yeah, it's interesting. We'll see where that goes. I think as many options is the best thing for everybody. I also think that the psychedelic component of the psychedelic experience is what's most helpful. At least what it's been most helpful to me is the mystical aspect of it. Now, um, mod, you, you see modern scientists debating this. Well, is it the compound? Is it what is this? And then I found a lot of the people that we've talked to, we've talked to some of the top scientists in these fields, you know, you're, Matthew Johnson's from Johns Hopkins, your Andrew Gallimore's neurocomputational biologist, your Rick Strassman, the guy that basically kicked started the psychedelic revolution here um, in the 90s. Um, we talked to all those people and basically what what it comes down to is it seems like the, the most helpful aspect of this is the mystical elements of it. I don't know why that's not clear. Like, mm-hmm. um, why, you know, why do people fall back on religion? Why do people, it's like taking that load off your shoulders. Right. So, um, I don't know how that well, doesn't, dude, I mean, we like, we also live in an extremely, uh, Calvinistic and, and Protestant kind of culture and society. And I bring that up because, I think there's this idea that medicine can't feel good, right? You hear this come up a lot in like in discussions about medical cannabis where um, patients who use cannabis to support their health and well-being will sometimes also voice a degree of guilt or consternation about the fact that they like getting high. Like they like using cannabis, but it's also helping them manage, say, their chemotherapy symptoms or their multiple sclerosis or whatever. Um, And and I think that this whole idea around taking the trip out of psychedelics, I mean, in a perfect world, as a consumer or as a patient or an explorer, you should get an option. You can try, have something that is psychedelic and something that's not. But um, I, I think there's this idea that like, if you're treating a malady or an illness, like God forbid you have any fun right? Or you have any sort of expansive element, it should only be this pure medicinal application. And I think that that speaks to this whole kind of dissociation between bodily wisdom and experience and sort of intellectual wisdom that we experience in sort of the modern Western way of living. Yeah, absolutely. Um, It's just, you know, this... We're, we're so simple in some regards, but we're so complex in other <laughs> regards. I get, I, I go back and forth, like, are we these simple AIs that are just, you know, copying and mirroring one another and just collecting data and then, you know, turning around and using it in whatever way that works best for us kind of a thing? Um, 
or are we these there's certainly some of that yeah yeah but or is it way more complex i don't know i I go back and forth on that regularly it's it's a really it's not so cut and dry i don't know no all right moving on mike we could talk about drugs all night but i was gonna say let's get to the uh to the next thing let's get to the next thing uh she's really moving along here folks um now we're getting to modernity. This is what Leah wanted to get to. Uh, the Western or more um, modern use. Um, let's see here. Um, okay, so I think this is from Andy Lecter's book, Shroom. Um, in 1799, uh, the first uh, psychedelic experience in mushroom, or <laughs> the first psychedelic mushroom experience uh, took place when supposedly uh, this guy went to gather field mushrooms for his family to eat, and uh, he picked a psychedelic. Uh, he picked, I think, psilocybe, uh, similaciata, uh, um, and those are liberty caps, if you don't know what those are. They actually look very different than a lot of the other psilocybe mushrooms. They've got very uh, skinny stems with more of a pointy or nipple looking cap um actually you can buy a shirt all you have to do is hang out on the foraging subreddit and you'll see a million pictures of people that think they have found liberty caps and every now and then somebody gets lucky and they're like yes that's what you want you should eat those but most of the time it's like straw mushrooms that people find in their backyard yeah never just never just eat mushrooms um if you're interested don't do that if you're interested, you can really get into mycology and probably um, learn your, some stuff yourself and go mushroom foraging and stuff like that. Yep. But I will say this. There are some mushrooms that look like they're the psychedelic kind or look like they are edible or an edible kind, and they are definitely not. And some are very poisonous. There's death caps. There's poisonous caps. Um there's variations of Amanita that are even poisonous and there's other variations that aren't, you know, uh, Muscaria and Panthera are probably okay. Uh, but they do have neurotoxic, um, stuff in them too. So you have to decarboxylate them to get rid of the ibotanic acid, which converts it into muscimol, um, which gives you what you're looking for for anybody that's interested. Um, I still am not a I fan of I love when it. you whisper all these big chemicals sounding words in my ear. Mike. It's a lot of fun. <laughs> um, and, you know, just to throw this out there, too, um, I've tried Amanita. Not a fan. Didn't really get anything out of it. I'm not, you know, people say they've had these crazy experiences or it doesn't work for everybody or whatever. That's fine. But mm, I've never had I've tried the tincture and I've tried um, ingesting. Not my thing. Uh, just made me tired and I had vivid dreams. That was about it. Um, let's see here. So yeah, that that guy in 1799 picked the wrong mushroom and recorder. Again, you can find that I think in Andy Lecter's book Shroom, which is actually a pretty good book on mushrooms if you haven't read it already. Um, let's see here. Um, that guy mentioned that discovered the uh, people. Um, spruce. Spruce. The guy that he found him drinking ayahuasca. He actually took. Uh, apparently a small dose of that as well. Um, let's see here. Um, 
yeah, and then you get like in 1893, Quanah Parker um, gave 50 pounds of dried peyote buttons to an ethno uh, ethnologist nice. at the Smithsonian Institute. Um, yeah, I think. Oh, he supplied also the peyote to psychologist uh, William James, who you might know. Uh, William mm-hmm. James from variety of uh, uh, varieties of spiritual experience. Yeah. No. Religious experiences. Religious experiences. And actually, there's a famous quote. Um, William James said the first time he ever heard a lecture on psychology was when he gave his first lecture on psychology or something along those lines. So, like, that's how groundbreaking some of this stuff was. You think of these things as so long ago, but it actually, in essence, yeah, it's 100, 150 years ago. Uh, But in reality, that's not really that long ago um, in the scheme of things. So. Um, let's see here. In 1897, pharmacologist Arthur Hefter, um, took 150 gram, uh, 150 milligram dose of mescaline hydrochloride, um, that he isolated, um, which that's interesting. Um, and we'll get into the synthesis stuff in a second, because right now this is all like the natural, um, kind of stuff. Uh, let's see here. Um, 1914, some guy supposed or Science Magazine published some article with the guy, the first man who ingested a psilocybin mushroom, which obviously was not the first man because they've been ingested for thousands of years, probably even longer. Um, mm-hmm. and then you get to our boy, uh, 1943, uh, Albert Hoffman, who took his famous um, 250 micrograms of LSD. Um, he synthesized it. Um, he accidentally got some on him one day and then he, you know, has the bicycle day, which is the famous day, uh, that he goes for the bicycle ride, has the experience. Um, let's see here. 1953, uh, William Burroughs, um, wrote a letter, uh, to his friend, Allen Ginsberg talking about drinking ayahuasca. Um, Aldous Huxley, um we all know doors about of perception. doors of perception his connection with mescaline um we and, also have yeah, houston smith so houston smith is also writing around this period and he's sort of the quintessential 20th century writer on religion and he wrote a book called cleansing the doors of perception i think that's what it's called and it's all about ethnobotany and ethnopharmacology and religious practices and traditions. Really, really great, interesting little work. His book, The World's Religions, or Man's Religions, as it was originally titled, is sort of like, if you're ever interested in like just a holistic collective study of religions, he's really a phenomenal uh, scholar of those, super accessible, very engaging, but also has this book, Cleansing the Doors of Perception. I, I'm almost certain that's what it's called. And obviously that's a reference to William Blake, The Doors of Perception. Um, yeah. Good little anecdote there. Thank you, Leah. Um, and this is where we get to, you know, if you want to learn more about like this Gordon Wasson, Maria Sabina stuff, again, check out our Tom Lane episodes. I think I even have it on a playlist on our YouTube channel. Uh, where we talk about sacred mushroom rituals and his book and his connection with Maria Sabina and explaining Quetzalcoatl and all that kind of stuff. So check that out. But 1955, uh, Gordon Wasson, who at the time was vice president of J.P. Morgan, um, 
you know, did a, <laughs> did a mushroom ceremony in Oaxaca, Mexico, um, you know, with Maria Sabina. Um, and then I think it was at time magazine or one of these magazines released the first image. It's like an it image. Was, of, it was time. Yeah. yeah. They did. I think it was like, what'd you say? 1954. Oh, life magazine. It was life, life magazine. magazine. Yeah. Okay. 1957. Yeah. But they uh, did like a whole photo spread and yep, stuff. Absolutely. Yep. Um, and she has a daughter too. I forget her name. It's like Apollonia or something like that too, where she was also, um, part of the whole thing as well. Uh, but yeah, Maria Sabina, famous mushroom sabia. Um, if you don't know what a sabia is, it's like the female version of a, a shaman. It's somebody that was born to do as like a healer. They're born into it, almost like a mushroom Dalai Lama or something, if you will. Um, I don't know. That's a weird connection, but um, but I, yeah. So I all that. So all that happened with Gordon Wasson. Now I'm there's some argument over the Gordon Wasson stuff. Some people say Gordon Wasson was connected with the CIA, MK Ultra, all that kind of stuff. Um, other people say no. Um, I don't know. I don't know enough about it. I've had people on. Tom Lame seems to think all that stuff's BS and knew some of these guys because he's older um, and was around with Schultes and. Um, you know, Hoffman and all these people. So, uh, again, listen to those episodes. It's a wealth of knowledge from somebody that lived through these eras. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know what to, to make of that. I don't know. Have you heard anything on that ever? Um, Leah? No, no, I, I haven't heard anything about this. Well, I can tell you though, I just read chaos, um, that book by Tom O'Neill about, um, mm -hmm. you know, the Charles Manson murders, MK ultra, right. And it's the scope of MK Ultra and the dosing that was happening and the um, all that stuff. There's actually a documentary, too, on part, like a small sliver of it. It's called Wormwood about the Frank Olson case, mm -hmm. who was one of he was in the CIA, I believe. And he was dosed by his own, you know, whatever person ahead of him. And uh, he had like some sort of psychotic break because he didn't know and he ended up jumping out of his own window and then his son kind of put the screws to him and figured out what happened and I think he got like a huge settlement or some sort of admission or something I'd have to go back and watch it but um, yeah interesting stuff so and then we get to uh, 1959 Alan Watts uh, tries LSD um, which I'm sure many of you have listened to Alan Watts um, along with Terrence McKenna and their long ass talks and that Ram are all over. Das. The... Yeah, Ramdas. I, I, the... I even wore my Ramdas shirt for tonight's occasion. There you go. Very yeah. cool. Um, yeah, but all, uh, you know, Alan Watts, um, famous, you know, philosopher on uh, YouTube. <laughs> uh, but yeah, go check out all those those talks. Um, and then the 1960s, you get the clandestine chemists, um, mm -hmm. you know, Leonard, pa cool yeah, Leonard Picard, who went away to jail for a long time. And he recently he's out. I, he's done some interviews the last few years, and I believe uh, he's written a book as well. Uh, Nick Sand. I'm not really a fan of Nick Sand. I know a lot of people like what he contributed. Uh, you, and then you have my boy, Osley. Uh, Osley was connected with the Grateful Dead and uh basically produced tons and tons of lsd um let's see here and a lot of people don't know this but 
um, you know, you have the hate Ashbury scene. The Grateful Dead would do these things called the acid tests, um, which would they they would promote it. So they would have a punch bowl and they would fill, you know, they put doses in it, and then people would take the punch start tripping and then the Grateful Dead would just play and jam and that's actually eventually how the Grateful Dead came up with their sound now I know a lot of people don't like the Grateful Dead as a musician I love the Grateful Dead there's um they take you to a place I can't you know I'm wearing the hat for God's sakes but they take you to a place uh that I can't explain and Jerry Garcia's knowledge of music theory and the ability to improvise and um just everything about it um, I think is magical and the way that they got there was just from taking psychoactive compounds and jamming and then eventually the jams were chaotic but that chaos like led mm-hmm. to something beautiful which is a very interesting way to go about it they you know he describes in one of his interviews that they had carte blanche and when you have carte blanche and you just keep doing it eventually something will come out of that so um yeah uh, so that's that. That's like the hate Ashbury stuff in the '60s. Um, let's see here. And then, let me pull this up here. I mean, we could talk about prohibition for a second. I don't want to spend too much time on it, but in 1966, um, the government or the U.S. government uh, prohibited the sale of uh peyote mescaline dmt lsd actually you could buy lsd in the 50s um you could buy a lot of substances actually previous to some of these laws um in 1970 um lsd mda psilocybin psilocin mescaline peyote cannabis all became scheduled one under the controlled substance act which Mm-hmm. is probably the worst law ever written um yeah yeah it's terrible T- talk about a piece of legislation that has led to just absolutely catastrophic amounts of human suffering for no other reason than the government feeling entitled to police what people put into their bodies the war on drugs is completely also failed. super racist yeah. yeah like also super- let's be real super yeah. racist super classist like um has just turned the entire prison industrial complex into a profit generating machine. I mean, I, sorry to go off on a political tangent, but when we think about sort of the functioning of a, of a civilized society, this law is probably one of the, uh, I was going to say other than all the other terrible stuff on, on uh, throughout American history, but this law is one of those things that has contributed to just extraordinary amounts of human suffering. Yeah, I mean, and now we know that a lot of these substances have beneficial effects for mental health, addiction, mm-hmm. uh, different things that we're being, in, you know, have the affliction of in current modern society. And, you know, we're all scrambling to figure out how to deal with this and they just want to throw, you know, pills at it. And it's just like that's mm-hmm. as somebody with OCD and a mental health um, issue, um, something I've really struggled with um, for me. Uh, I already had a relationship with psilocybin, but psilocybin is really what kind of got me out of my own uh, way and was able to look at myself from outside of myself and then really analyze um, how can I go forward. And it was a combination of CBT and introspection. And then just also, if you have a mental health issue, the worst thing for you is having too much time and space to think. 
Go do mm-hmm. something, read something, learn something. If you have a creative outlet, immerse yourself in it. I've learned how to use my OCD in a positive way now where I find patterns that other people don't see or I do research. Um, it's spending time late at night and going over and over and over and over things. And, um, you know, I have notes on things sometimes. Like I have a, you know, kind of a, like a timeline thing in front of me. But I actually just mm-hmm. remember a lot of stuff just from occupying my mind um, by reading mm-hmm. constantly. So, yeah, somebody mentioned Jolly West. Yeah, Jolly West is that MK Ultra dude that was dosing everybody. And he was, you know, in the military. You know, I wanted to ask Shane about this too because Jolly West is the guy that ended up dosing everybody at the Haight Ashbury Free Clinic. Um, and he was in the Air Force. Like, how do you go from being in the Air Force to becoming part of like one of these alphabet agencies and then doing something like that? You know, do they recruit you? Do you apply? Like, how does that work? You have a personal disposition lacking in moral. Yeah. Well, that was, well, that was how they explained them. They're like this dude, he was like a super conservative dude that wore like a fake hippie costume. And it was like, he was like the you're able to spot the cop at the, 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 I was going to say, it's like going to a music festival. Yeah. Recognizing yeah. Who the Fed is. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. The buzz, buzz cut and dad jeans. Yep. Absolutely. Um, but, uh, yeah, so let's get back to what we're, so like now we get to the psychedelic Renaissance, um, that we're seeing now. Um, we've had Rick Strassman on the show now three times. He's going to be in our documentary. Um, and, super super nice dude um very generous with his time and his knowledge and everything but anyways between 1990 and 1995 he administered dmt to roughly 60 volunteers um and then recorded the the effects uh he then published the book dmt the spirit molecule you might have seen dmt the spirit molecule documentary joe rogan's like the host of it kind of um interesting stuff and from speaking with rick he didn't he didn't start off looking for that. He started off just wanting to um, investigate the pineal gland. Um, And uh, through, you know, looking into melatonin and melatonin production, uh, he started to investigate this other stuff like DMT. And then, you know, you get to the point, you know, he was mentioning like he had to justify um, doing these these tests with dmt because they're the government's just not gonna let you test dmt just to see what happens so um he said he was like recording like you know people's heartbeats and blood pressure like things like that just like basic physiological effects um because you got to have some you know science in there to give to the the nerds um let's see here nerds uh but yeah rick's an awesome guy go check out our episodes with him and let's see here, 1988, um, Swiss neuroscientists discovered that LSD and psilocybin, um, you know, they they produce the effects that they have by binding to the 5-HT2A receptor. So if you watch our show, I talk about the 5-HT2A receptors all the time, and those are the receptors that tryptamines play off of um, in your physiology. So... Mm-hmm. Anything you want to add, Leah? Um, yeah, so my, my addition here is that I just finished the book Alien Information Theory by Andrew Gallimore. Highly recommended reading, um, even just as an artifact. Super cool book with its art and layout. Um, but he really gets into um, 
I mean, he's talking explicitly about complexity and self-organization and information theory and uh, specifically through the lens of a DMT breakthrough experience. But he also has this incredible lay explanation for how and why these different chemicals engage with, what is it, the 5-HT2A? Yeah, 5-HT2A receptor. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And he taught, like, if anyone's curious about DMT and sort of the interplay between how the mind forms our con- conception of reality and how it can sort of be adjusted and played with, super great book. Um, but that's, it's been top of mind. Uh, and, and I also know, obviously, that this receptor plays an essential role in a substantial number of uh, psychedelic experiences or chemicals. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and actually, I know people that take 5-HT too when they're coming down from certain things or trying to um, straighten mm-hmm. themselves out. Um, but somebody asked, what's your thoughts on Joe Rogan and psychedelics? I, is You know, this person said he's a fraud. I, I don't think he's a fraud. This is what I think about Joe Rogan. Uh, I I like his guests, um, like his science guests. Like I watch the science episodes, the philosophy episodes, some of the comedy ones. Um, yeah, all of it's not for You know, he's got so many interests that I don't think anybody could have the exact same interest unless they just like the show. But um, and when it comes to psychedelics specifically, I get aggravated uh, watching when he has psychedelic guests on because he repeats the same talking points over and over. I don't think that's a bad thing, though. Here's what I'll say. I think that much like the UFO topic that we all love, how, you know, do you like this guy or like that guy? Well, some of these people are so popular that they've got so many eyes on them that uh, it can be beneficial just to get the word out, meaning... Joe Rogan's talked about DMT so many times on his show that so many people just know about DMT now that it would have never have known Mm -hmm. about DMT otherwise. So you can get mad. Like I said, I I used to get frustrated, but it's just like, that's just who he is. He's not reading white papers or scientific papers or knowing the latest studies, the U of M, you know, rat and mice studies uh, with DMT. He's not reading those papers and, and he admits it too. He's like, I'm a dumbass. You know, he's like, I don't know. You know, he, he's like, look into this, Jamie. He has Jamie pull stuff up. He did you know? So my whole thing is, um, I like when he has like Hamilton Morrison or Dennis McKenna. I like those episodes. I just think that if you're looking to watch a show to get like the cutting edge science, you're, you're, you're at the wrong place basically. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I don't know if you have an opinion about it. Um, I'll get a lot of angry DMs if I share my opinion on Joe Rogan. Um, but <laughs> I will, I will, I in his in his defense, I'll say about him what I'll also say about Tim Ferriss, which is that these are people that have enormous platforms, and when it comes to the subject of psychedelics, I think have done a world of good in terms of legitimizing both for spiritual applications and for therapeutic and mental health applications. And for that, I'm very grateful. Yeah, great points. If you're looking for a good psychedelic podcast, obviously you can listen to Mind Escape. We have a whole psychedelic playlist. But if I had to recommend other ones, Hamilton Morris has a great one. Which used to he's be really only, good. which only used to be Patreon, but now it's the, he's got episodes out there. The the specifically the episode about the origin of the penis envy mushroom strain is super interesting. Um, but so yeah, so that one psychedelics today. I've had uh, 
Joe Moore and um, Kyle Buller on before a couple times. They're really interesting, smart dudes. Um, Psychedelic Salon. Um, yeah, I mean, there's, 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 they're out there if you're looking for a good psychedelic podcast. Um, but uh, yeah, um, the the one person we've kind of glossed over, and one of my perennial favorites because he's like totally out there, is John Lilly, right? Love John Lilly. You just yeah. thought of him. Yeah, I'm I'm a I'm a big John Lilly fan. Uh, definitely has some problematic elements, but like he's the one who, he developed flotation and like sensory deprivation tanks in the fifties. Um, did a whole lot of ketamine. Um, wrote some really fascinating books on kind of how psychedelics and these flotation tank experiences can all lend themselves to sort of stripping down and then rebuilding like your internal frameworks and landscaping and thought processes or like landscape and thought processes. Um, his book, what's it called? I think programming and metaprogramming the human computer is an interesting read. So is the, I think the other one that he wrote is called the center of the cyclone. He wrote a handful of books, but, um, I'm, I'm a big fan of his. I like this idea of having kind of like a rogue scientist who's just doing his own thing, super brilliant, like forming his own cosmology, experimenting on himself. That's why I think the Shulkins are so cool and fascinating. Um, you know, they don't make them like they used to, man. Yeah, no. Um, you know, the, the thing about John Lilly is, and I'm going to throw this out there too. If you like jam band stuff too, there's a band called Oysterhead, which was formed. It's Trey from Fish on guitar, Les Claypool from Primus on bass, and Stuart Copeland from The Police on drums. And they were a little trio that formed when I was in high school. I was able to see them live, and they wrote a song called Oz is Ever Floating um, about John C. Lilly and his float tanks cool. and his um, yeah ketamine and all that kind of stuff. So if you like that kind of stuff, check out Oysterhead, the band. Oz is Ever Floating. Uh, but yeah, John C. Lilly, you know, making connections with bureaus of metaphysical entities and taking intramus- intramuscular uh, ketamine uh, doses to the dome. No, I'm not, not to the dome, but uh, <laughs> uh, to the ball sack, you know. He was like... doing a lot of ketamine. <laughs> yeah, actually, the, the other thing, too, and uh, Hamilton Morris's ketamine episode is very good, by the way. Highly recommended viewing for people. Absolutely. Actually... Real quick, just some of my favorite Hamilton uh, Morris or Hamilton's pharmacopoeia episodes. I really love um, the. I believe it's called uh, the Lazy Lizard School of Hedonism uh, about the guy. I think Jacques Lemaire or something Lemaire. Um, he basically turned an old. Um, I think it was a volcano turned it into a lab, an MDMA lab, and produced the most MDMA uh, in the 60s and the 70s. Um, and he was basically funneling all this stuff. And, um, yeah, check that episode out. Uh, the – what was the other one, one that's my favorite? Oh, the – I again, I don't – I'm not a big Amanita fan, but the Amanita episode's very interesting that he did. Um, and there's one cool. more. I can't think of, but there's a scary one too. The one he does on Xenon, the gas. I haven't seen that one. I've uh, only seen the ketamine episode. Yeah, the, the Xenon one, these people are inhaling. It's supposedly like um, like crazy psychedelic. Like people use it to like recover from, um, I believe that's, let me see here. 
Um, uh, <laughs> but yeah, so the one dude's like vomiting in his like mask during this like session. He's like choking on his own. So like, and later on after the episode in the thing, it says this dude died. <laughs> like that's, Aspirated, yeah, yeah died. that's, that shit's crazy. Um, was it Xenon? I can't remember. It's anyways, it's a super rare gas that's emitted from the ground. Um, that they're using like in like other countries they have like clinics you can go to kind of like how they have ketamine clinics here and um do this and it's supposed to have like super beneficial biological effects um Hmm. but yeah i mean have you ever done nitrous i have not done well no i take that back but like when you ask me these questions i'm like thinking have i illicitly done nitrous i have not illicitly done nitrous i have done nitrous when i had my wisdom teeth out uh and i've had dental procedures done yeah i did some balloons at a fish show a long time ago never did it since not my thing um yeah, it's a real problem on these hippie lots too, the whole nitrous game. But anyways, um, they call it hippie crack. Um, yes, I've heard that term. <laughs> um, all right, so back to the timeline stuff. We left off um, with the dude that discovered the 5-HT2A. Let's get to, we're wrapping it up here. We're getting close to the end. Uh, anybody that's mm-hmm. hanging on, I know. Yeah, we also have... I mean, the other thing to to call out, uh, and this is just a brief aside, is we have like basically the Harvard Psychedelic Club in the 60s and 70s. This is like Timothy Leary, Richard Alpert, who goes on to become Ram Dass. Um, I'm a big Ram Dass fan. He's amazing. Um, Andrew Weil, the kind of holistic or naturopath or whatever that sells, I don't know, cookbooks and supplements. Um Houston Smith, who I mentioned before, who wrote these books on religion, like all of these guys are hanging out with each other. Their sort of claim to fame is um, the kind of Harvard mushroom study. Um, there's a there's a term for yeah. this. I don't remember the what mystical called, uh, the one. It with was the... on like Good Good Friday. Or yeah, something. that's yeah. It's the one with the priests. Is that the one you're talking about? Yeah. It's, yeah, it's it's the, the semin- it's seminary experiment. school, you know. Yep. Yeah, the seminary, the seminarians. It happened uh, on Good Friday um, at uh, Boston University's Marsh Chap- Chapel, and it was led by Timothy Leary, Richard Alpert, and the Harvard Psilocybin Project. And basically, this this event, I think, is kind of what fast tracked Timothy Leary and Richard Alpert from getting kicked out of Harvard. Um, but they basically dosed. 20 graduate divinity students um, in a double-blind experiment, half getting psilocybin, half getting this control group. And then in the cases where like pretty much all the members who were in this experimental group who experienced a psilocybin trip, basically categorized it as one of the most um, profound experiences of their entire lives, right? Like these were divinely inspired. and Houston Smith, actually, Houston Smith was a participant in this experiment, and he characterized it as, quote, the most powerful cosmic homecoming I have ever experienced. And he subsequently went on to write some of the most formative works um, on religious studies in the 20th century. And again, this work on um, ethnobotany and pharmacology. So this was stuff that th- this event and sort of it's the outgrowth of things that happened after it basically laid the foundation for what I think we experience now in sort of the psychedelic renaissance. Cause we're seeing a lot of these ideas kind of return to the forefront of contemporary experiments and clinical trials and stuff. Yeah. 
great points. Um, and, um, yeah, I mean, I mentioned it maybe the last episode that we did or maybe a few ones ago, but the most, I, you know, I was raised Catholic, um, went to Catholic schools till I got to middle school. Um, and the most religious or mystical experience I had, I had nothing, I had like religion did nothing for me until I became, you know, old enough. I think I was like 14 or 15 the first time I tried psilocybin. Um, and that was a mystical religious experience. I'm like, oh, and that's what got me. I mentioned earlier, becoming a psychonaut and really pushing myself. I, cause I wanted to know, is there anything more? Is there more to this whole thing? Or is this just all there is, you know, kind of a thing. So, um, yeah, I think that, um, that's an interesting study and it's definitely referenced a lot because of all the things that you just mentioned. Um, Let's see here. 1999, Roland Griff, Dr. Roland Griffins, um, he sets up a program at Johns Hopkins University to study psilocybin. And Roland's still, Hopkins, yeah, Roland's still there. Uh, and again, we've had Matthew Johnson, who is one of uh, the other doctors uh, at Johns Hopkins studying psychedelics and consciousness. I think they have a specific consciousness wing mm-hmm. now. Um, and... Yeah, interesting stuff. You can go listen to our episode with Matthew. Um, let's see here. In 2006, Griffiths, Roland, who we just talked about, um, you know, published, you know, how psilocybin can induce these mystical experiences. And as I mentioned before, I believe that that's what helped me, the mystical aspect of it, not the actual compound. Because I've tried microdosing, did nothing for me. And I'm not saying it doesn't work for other people, um, but that macro dose with that paradigm shifting experience and having this connection to something greater than yourself is the healing mm-hmm. aspect of it to me. Um, yeah. So. I mean, that's something like, like Rick Doblin after the, you know, he's the head of maps researcher in psychedelic science and uh, in, in therapeutic applications of this, like one of the contentions he made about, explicitly about that Good Friday experiment that I referenced was that um, even later on in their lives, the people who had psilocybin still considered that experience to be one of the most truly mystical and transformative of their lives. And we're talking about divinity students here. We're not talking about kind of your standard issue, like lay person. And from that, we can sort of draw the conclusion that yeah, like these experiences, even if they're deliberately induced with an exogenous psychedelic like psilocybin, they still fall very squarely into the a, a legitimate mystical or divine awakening. And I, and I think that that's really important to call out because I think there's this proclivity to treat spiritual emergence or awakenings as something that has to happen only endogenously, something that has to be kind of either spontaneous or induced, but you can't have outside help. But the reality is that these experiences, no matter how you induce them or how you approach them, can still be equally valuable and important in like the involvement of psilocybin. Work or fasting or whatever, these are all this, they're all taking you to the top of the mountain. It's just like different paths that you're, you're, you're taking to get there. Um, and I just, I always feel like I want to call that out because I, I don't ascribe or I don't prescribe to this kind of purity culture around spiritual growth and experience. Like I, I think that attaining these states using 
psilocybin or breathwork or whatever else, it's just as legitimate as attaining them through meditation, though I would strongly suggest having some kind of spiritual or meditation practice to kind of have as a scaffold to help process and integrate these experiences. And I'm going to have a hot take here. Um, (laughs) So there's this idea that you're supposed to evolve from psychedelics to meditation or other ways to alter states without needing um, some sort of chemical intervention. Um, I will say I'm a meditator. Um, At what point I was meditating for an hour to two hours a day before I had my son and um, had more time. and yeah, you can go places, you know, like lucid dreaming. Oh, yeah. you know, like there's ways to, to get out there. However, however, psychedelics is the only thing that you can take that can alter your consciousness and allow you to walk around in day-to-day consciousness and interact with the world around you, which I think is the most important mm-hmm. aspect of it. That, yes, for me, That's a good point. I love the closed-eyed meditation, darkness, you know, I'll push it. 3.5 to 5 to 6 grams darkness meditation you know 7 hour McKenna style tran- 7 hour transformational experience now I'm on a little bit of hiatus because of you know we had my son last year there's just no I just don't need to do it I've done it plenty of times mm-hmm. um, sure. in my life and um, but I will say that I don't I don't look at it like that. Like all these people say, you're supposed to like graduate to this or that or whatever, transcend it. Like, I don't look at it like that. I think it's a tool. If you use it, you use it. If you don't, you don't. There's not a hierarchy or better way to do this or that or the other thing. So. Yeah, I I would agree with the, with the only caveat that I think it is important to have, um, an integration process, whether it's meditation or, working with a counselor or in a communal environment. But the point is, I, I, the point I'm trying to make is that having some kind of sense-making apparatus for these experiences, I think is really, really important for kind of regrounding and integrating. So you're not just kind of dipping in and out of these altered states without, um, I, I think, kind of fully metabolizing their, their value. Sure. I, I see... I used to put kind of like, I'm going to think about this or I want to do this or whatever. And I, I found for me uh, when I was still doing it, and my my favorite compound psilocybin, that's like home to me. Um, sure. When I have my best experiences, I don't, ha- I don't go in with preconceived notions. I let mm-hmm. the trip guide me. I close my eyes in darkness. Um, I've all, I've done the whole you know, interact with the world around you, music, write songs, gigs, all that kind of stuff when I was younger. I don't need to do that. I understand, you know, that aspect of it. For me, it's like I use, you know, in the past, more recent past, I've used psilocybin for creative ideas and, you know, things that have come to me as like messages or signals or symbolism that, again, I don't go in looking for that. It finds me, um, if you will. I just... I'm open to it. I, so when you meditate it, it's like I go into a meditative state, which is kind of what I'm describing. It's kind of like clearing your mind. You don't have any direction. You're just going into this thing. And I just let the trip uh, guide me. The trip is my sitter or, or the, the psilocybin is my sitter or it is my guide. Um, and I just explore. And, I you know, I've been shown 
This is the realm of imagination and knowledge and things can be taken from the realm of imagination and translated into waking reality or day-to-day life. But it's not as simple as, you know, thinking of it. Like I write notes when I'm tripping and some of them make a lot of sense. I'm like, that's fucking profound. I I thought of that. Uh, And then there's other ones where I'm like, what the fuck is that? That's like a different language. So yeah. So it just depends. Um, But yeah, I mean, I think that, that, to what you're saying, there's a lot of truth, but I also, like I said, I think that it's it, all this stuff's more complex and there's times in your life where you might need this stuff and there's times in your life where you won't. So, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, let's get back to it. So part of that 2006 Griffiths, uh, publishing or publish, uh, article, he also talks about how psilocybin and LSD can reduce cluster headaches and intensity of migraines. That's true. I actually get migraines. I've had them since I was a baby or a kid, I guess, whenever my oldest memory is or youngest memory, excuse me. Um, and I've, you know, nothing's really worked for me. Um, Advil was always the, the go-to with like Coke because of the caffeine in it. Um, but uh, if anybody's been afflicted with migraines, you know, there's just some days where it doesn't matter what you do you're, you're done. It's just, it's got you, you know, you just gotta, maybe I try and sleep as much as I can those days because it's just painful. Uh, I will say this, I said, I don't microdose and I didn't, but when I, uh, like probably six, seven years ago, I tried microdosing during these cluster headaches or these migraine episodes. And it, it, it did help. I mean, it's just, it's, it's, you know, it's published, oh, yeah. it's published science at this point, but yeah, I mean, cool. it's not, it's not anecdotal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Qualia Research Institute has written a lot on the role of DMT microdosing in stopping and ameliorating cluster headaches. Absolutely. Um, let's see here. Okay, uh, and then you get Robin Carhart Harris. What is that? Two thousand ten, maybe? No, two thousand nine. Um, he carried out. Uh, the first psilocybin study in the UK. Um, obviously, the UK is a little bit more, cons- way more conservative um, in that regard. Um, I know people that live there, and somehow it's worse than here. Um, <laughs> believe it or not, um, you have people trying to change that, like Professor David Nutt, um, and some people over there at Imperial College, and you know, there's a lot of people lobbying to get that stuff kind of switched over. 2011, you get Charles Grobe, um, you know, the end of life patients with MDMA and PTSD. Um, and then it's just more Robin Carhart Harris, 2014, 2016. You know, they're doing effects of LSD, psilocybin, and the brains using fMRIs, scanning, all that kind of stuff. Um, let's see here. Uh, Imperial College in 2019 um, launched the Center for Psychedelics. And then again, I mentioned earlier, John Hopkins kind of came along later with their own version of that, the Center for Consciousness Research. Um, And yeah, that's kind of where we are now. Um, And if you're, again, if you're interested, on YouTube, I have on our channel, the Psychedelic Playlist, we have... If there's a big name in the psychedelic community, there's a chance that we've had them on. And if not, leave a comment. I'll try and get them on if I can, if I haven't already. Right. Um, and, yeah, is there anything you want to add before we start to wrap it up? 
No, um, I don't think so. But I, I think this was a really cool way to bookend the last conversation that we had in terms of creating this whole arc from pre-modernity and ancient civilizations through 2022-23. I mean, I think the grand takeaway is that there's enormous healing and connection potential with these substances. Humans have been using them since time immemorial in all sorts of circumstances. And um, I think we're living in a very exciting kind of renaissance where finally, 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 the therapeutic and healing value of these experiences um, particularly from an integrated fashion in terms of exploring um, one's spiritual and sort of soul-making, uh, I feel very grateful that this is finally kind of getting its moment because I think it's also desperately needed. We live in a time where people are just so traumatized. Um, so that's that's my psychedelic soapbox as we wrap things up. No, great points. Um says let's hear phoenix Myko. phoenix yeah we've had andrew on uh, a few times and he's in our documentary and which is coming out in march and andrew will be back on the show soon actually too we're going to discuss his newer book reality switch technologies um yeah again phoenix gallimore has been on the show three times so check him out um let's see here um yeah i mean my you know, the whole point of the the Mysteries and Metaphysics series, which, again, normally we have Maurice here through most of them, but Maurice is busy editing our documentary and doing all that. Um, when it comes to... Um, when it comes to uh, psychedelics, um, it, I think it's a personal thing, but it's also something where... I've gotten so many positive messages and nice emails from sharing my own experiences and my mental health issues and things like that. So I think it's important that people aren't afraid to share their experiences. And there's a lot of states now where you don't have to feel ashamed because it's either decriminalized or even in some spots legalized. Now, um, you know, it's things are coming along. If you would have told me cannabis uh, would be recreational in um Detroit, you know, Detroit and Chicago, two of the places I've lived most of my life. Um, I would have told you you're crazy uh, if you had told me that when I was in high school. Uh, but now here we are. Uh, it's recreationally legal in both places. Um, mm -hmm. So that's huge. That's a step in the right direction. Um, oh, Phoenix, Mike, I didn't even know. It's Alex. Uh, shout out to Alex. We've had Alex on the show before. Um, awesome. he, run, he runs the DMT World uh, podcast. Check that oh, out. Cool. Um, Hi, Alex. It's nice to meet you. And, uh, but, uh, yeah, I mean, in terms of, I've shared so many of my trip reports, um, but what we're going to do is with the psychedelic part of mysteries and metaphysics, the whole point is to go through, look at things, how we looked at them before and how we look at them now. Um, you know, the evolution of thought of our own you know, philosophies on these things through the last five years. I can honestly say that for psychedelics, when I was younger, um, I used to not have reverence. I, I, again, I was pushing boundaries. I was exploring, I guess maybe there's a reverence there of some kind. Uh, but I wasn't thinking about it like, oh, this is a powerful tool. I must respect this. This is, um, mm -hmm. you know, there's a spiritual aspect to this. I wasn't thinking about it like that, but then, 
probably seven, eight years ago that changed, and now I have complete reverence for it. They are very powerful tools. You do not need to use them um, as much as I used to in my younger years. Um, and, uh, yeah, I have crazy stories, fun stories, all that stuff. I don't regret anything, but at the same time, um, I think you can draw from that and, and kind of move in a, a, a different direction. Um, but I will say, if you're interested, we did a trip report series. Um, I don't know what episodes they were, but you can go back and look for it in our playlists um, where I go through all of our trips that I can remember um, from a certain time. There's three or four trip reports I'm never going to share. They're just too weird and mystical that... It means too much to me to not share it, mm -hmm. but I've been pretty open. And um, the next episode, and I don't know if Leah wants to come back on if, she, if she's got the 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 fortitude, if you will. But right. it's going to be a trip report one. So we've done the history now. The whole point is to go through this um, systematically. We went from trip report. Uh, or we, excuse me, we went from history and we're going to do trip report as the next part. So I would like Leah to come back. She doesn't have to talk about her own experiences or trip reports, but if she would like to, um, I think that would, that would be cool. Um, and I'm definitely going to be sharing some of the ones I've already shared, but obviously not, not everybody probably heard those. So I'll reshare some of the top ones. Um, cool. yeah. And I didn't mean to call you out Leah, but that's okay. I'm going to. Um, That's fine. Uh, no, Leah's been a trooper, and honestly... Can, oh, I was going to say, dude, I can do all the weird drugs like we talked about in the first episode. Yeah, like, uh, when would we, you? When I was getting ready for that for that episode, I was like, oh man, I'm going to have nothing to say about all the things we're going to talk about. And then as you were going through, you know, Egyptian henbane, Datura, uh, Kava Kava, I was like, oh yeah, I've done that. I've yeah, will you that. come out? Could we come back on and tell yeah. me about your experience <laughs> with uh, wild lettuce? Oh yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, I mean, some of those are still shocking to me that they're even psychoactive, but I think that that's hilarious that you knew like all the weird ones. But yeah, I mean, totally. If you want to share, I think that would actually be great because I don't think a lot of people know, like, I don't know. I mean, I know tropane trip reports from reading like Irwid, but I don't know many people I've talked to that have like shared like real trip reports yeah, off yeah. Of tropane. Right. So. Yeah, I think I think I can I can talk about the weird stuff and then I can also talk about doing a Groth Institute holotropic breathwork retreat. No drugs involved, but who hot dog? Definitely super psychedelic. Yeah, no anything. That's that's what this this part the psychedelic ones about. Anything psychoactive, pretty much. I mean, we're obviously talking about compounds, but I mean that can go into like what you're talking about breath work and altered states and all that kind of stuff. So absolutely, but yeah, I mean, I would I would love to, and I don't know who else we can get on here. I don't know if Shane wants to come on and talk about any of his experiences or Maurice or whatever, but we'll try and set something up. Cool. Uh, but yeah, this has been awesome. You bring uh, a ton of knowledge, which I appreciate, um, you know, and obviously drawing from your own personal experiences and stuff like that. But, um, yeah, I really appreciate you doing this with me. And, uh, I think, um, like I said, we'll do trip reports next. Um, and if there's any other aspect of the psychedelics that you want us to talk about, um, as part of this series, the seven point series, uh, let us know, you know, and we've, the, the mysteries of metaphysics isn't all just one thing. Like, I think, mm -hmm. you know, 
uh, one we talked about like ancient civilizations and stuff, and another one was you know, and then the four were all megalithic structures, um, that kind of a thing. So, um, yeah, they're all different topics that we've discussed on the show. And then we break them down through like the history and our thoughts on it and how we've evolved our philosophies and thoughts on it and stuff like that. So I have the list of all the episodes um, in the show notes. If you're interested in listening to the series, there's also a mysteries and metaphysics playlist. Um, And yeah, I think that that's all we got. We're, we're approaching two hours here. This is a fantastic episode. Um, Yeah. We started out with witches and we, you know, worked our way to warlocks. So you know, here we are. Beautiful. Mike, thank you so much for having me on. I, I always love our conversations and I'm super excited with what you're doing with the pod. Absolutely. And I know we've talked to possibly doing something in this realm uh, together as some sort of project in the future. And I'd like to explore that as well, possibly. And um, yeah, I, you're, you're in our documentary sure. coming up as within, so without from UFOs to DMT premieres in March. Lee is in it. Um, as well as a lot of the other people we talked about. Um, and yeah, check out Leah's YouTube channel and podcast called the invisible night school. It is, uh, the links down below. Uh, you can check out her Substack links down below, follow her on Twitter at Leah prime. Um, anything else? No, I think that's it. Thank you, Mike. All right. Yeah, definitely check out Leah's stuff. Um, and again, they had Mick West on, uh, their podcast tonight um that was a wild ride <laughs> um. <laughs> uh, yeah i was trolling in there for a few threw a couple out i i know i saw you <laughs> um this is this yes he was lovely to join us for a couple hours no i mean i mick mick gets a lot of shit but he's he's a um you know he plays ball he's he's you know he is what he is. Like I said, skeptics are skeptics. Yeah. You know, you you are. You know, you get what Su- you think you're super getting. Super skeptical, but he he's also, I think, very good natured, right? Yeah. He, yeah. He he laughs at himself, which I think is a is a good quality. I think that there's not enough people laughing at themselves. A lot too many people get pissed off about small, insignificant things. So, um, okay. yeah. Um, yeah. And if you want to support Mind Escape, all you have to do is click the link tree link down below patreon for two dollars a month you get exclusive content there's tons there's actually probably 30 or 40 uh psychedelic segments on there alone um yeah we get all sorts of people talking about psychedelics even people not even into psychedelics uh on there and uh if you were looking for merch we have a merch store actually shout out to sandy i have a merch shirt that i created in her honor with uh, with a li- couple Liberty caps, uh, hashtag uh, Mind Escape. That's a that's a sweet shirt. That's a hot find. Uh, so yeah, click on our merch store. Um, trying to think what else. Oh yeah, if you're watching on YouTube, which we do all of our episodes live on YouTube, please check out our audio platforms. We do video podcasts on Spotify, and we are also on Apple Podcasts and all audio platforms. If you are listening on an audio platform, please check out our live shows on YouTube, subscribe. And the easiest way to support the show is literally just to leave us a nice review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. We really appreciate that. So um, also check out our other check out my other podcast, the Roswell UFO Symposium. I do with producer Shane uh, and our buddy Toby at RDR Incident on Twitter. Um, Friday at 7 p.m. Eastern time, we have uh filmmaker james fox 
who made the film The Phenomenon and the more recent film Moment of Contact. On Saturday, I will have P.D. Newman um, on Mind Escape. Um, and Sunday, we are talking Space Pancakes on Roswell UFO Symposium. That's it. That's the show. We love everybody. Stay safe out there. And uh, I'm going to play us out with the trailer to the new documentary before we it up. So we love everybody. Stay safe out there. Thank you again, Leah. Peace. Is it real or is it not? That's what you're asking me. I still, to this day, can't find any rational explanation for what I saw. Extremely intelligent, apparently highly advanced, hyper-technological being. I think that we just don't look at the perception of reality in the right way yet. It got very close the point that I could see just one big light and then it stopped and then it shot up in the sky. You know, you know you're not dreaming, but you wonder how real any of it really is. It dawned on me, it, it was real, this, this took place, but then I still didn't do anything with it, never said anything to anybody. There is some mind-altering aspect to these UFO encounters. Uh, a lot of people get a sense of missing time. I noticed that these three stars were kind of in a formation, a triangular formation. Condensed into entities or beings that uh, you interact with who are sentient. The chemicals which are going into our brain are making the unconscious archetypes come alive how things evolve from pure energy to matter. Definitely was kind of a paradigm shifting moment. And as we continue to evolve in our own consciousness, we will perceive of new modes of interpretation, but that may be dependent upon how this supposed phenomenon reveals itself to us. I'm not sure why we discredit the human experience when it's not in alignment with our current belief system. It's important to consider that, one, we don't really understand what our minds do under the influence of psychedelics. Uh, they all attest to the reality of some other realm. Call it the paranormal, doesn't matter what you call it, spiritual realm, supernatural, metaphysical, doesn't matter. The fact that we're essentially vibrating energy in a sense and that when this experience is over that that particular energy transforms and doesn't die because it can't die fills me with a lot of comfort that there is something else after this so-called here and now they show you how much of your reality is subjective and fragile and capable of being influenced by a psychedelic drug Coming from a scientific background, you come up with explanations that range from geomagnetic to atmosphere to something that's physical in nature. There's a lot more out there that we don't know than we do know. So the entire system, the human body, is effectively a stimulation response machine. I think something's here, 
I don't know what it is. I don't know where it's from. It could be extraterrestrials. Until it made a full rotation and then it just hit an insane speed and just shot up straight into the atmosphere. I think that there's compelling evidence that psychedelics have played a significant role in human evolution over a long period of time. The our view of reality, the reality that we experience on a day-to-day -day basis, seems to be this very, very thin slice of something far larger and far more As within, so without. From UFOs to DMT.